Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2, and we will begin reading in verse number 11. And if you're there and you're able, would you please stand with me now out of respect for the reading of God's word. And remember, if you're looking in your bulletins, uh, the text has been changed. So we'll want to use a Bible or a phone. Uh, but there beginning verse number 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cried to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out, on their, mother's, on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Would you have a seat and join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would by your spirit teach us, convict us, and Father, we pray that you would point us to your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that your blessing would be with us now as we look at your word. Father, we ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you remember in the garden, the serpent comes to the woman and he says to her, you will not surely die. He says to her, you may have heard that you would surely die if you take this fruit. You might have heard that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But in reality, if you do this thing, then you will experience the greatest life you could ever imagine. Your eyes will be opened. You will have great joy. You will be like God. This is what he said to the woman, though she had heard differently before. And we know what happens in the story. 
The serpent didn't say to her anything that made her feel bad. The serpent didn't mock her. The serpent didn't uh, say hurtful words to her. But he said things that she liked to hear. He said things that pleased her. But the man and the woman did surely die. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 says that God drove the man out of the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the end, the Lord did what he purposed. We see something similar in our text today. The same pattern is seen, not exactly in the same way, but we see something similar going on here. You'll notice in verse 14, Jeremiah says to the people, Your prophets have seen for you false in deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but they have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. We saw an account of this in our scripture lesson. There we saw the false prophet Hananiah. What happens is Jeremiah, he gives a prophecy saying that the people will serve Nebuchadnezzar. And then Hananiah comes afterwards using very similar imagery And he says, you will not serve the king of Babylon. Instead, he will fall. All will be fine. But in the end, we saw that just like what happened in the garden, the Lord did what he had purposed. And so we must remember when we hear prophecies or when we hear teaching, oftentimes there is a very comfortable sort of teaching that leads ultimately to destruction. These types of sermons or these ways of teaching, they feel very comfortable to us. They don't require a lot of change. They don't require many tears. They're very comfortable. But in the end, they often bring us destruction. But on the other hand, there's a certain uncomfortable teaching, the teaching of the prophet Jeremiah that does bring tears that brings grief, that causes us to change the way that we live and the way that we think. But this very uncomfortable teaching ultimately brings restoration. And so today I would like us to look at these two types of teaching. First, we will see a comfortable teaching that leads to destruction. And second, we will see an uncomfortable teaching that leads to restoration. And under both of these headings, we will look at three things about them. So first, and quickly, let us look at the comfortable teaching that leads to destruction. Again, we see this in verse number 14, where he says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. One of the things that we see about these uh, visions or this type of teaching is first we see that A comfortable teaching often belittles the wrath of God. It belittles the wrath of God. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God, we must remember not to compare it to the way we usually think of wrath and what we see in human beings. When we talk about God's wrath, we're not talking about someone who is in a fit of rage, someone who spazzes out and just lashes out at people. That's not what we mean when we think of the wrath of God. We're not talking about some person with no control 
who just simply yells and screams and hits. But when we talk about God's wrath, it's very linked to his justice. In fact, if we were to look at Psalm chapter 7, or Psalm 7, uh, we see the way that God's wrath and his justice is linked together. There it says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He is prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Why does God feel indignation every day? Why does he have wrath every day? Well, it's because he is a righteous judge. And a righteous judge has a righteous wrath against sin, against the breaking of his law. And so we see God is wrathful, but he is slow to wrath. He says if a man does not repent, he will carry out his justice. So when we use the term the wrath of God, do not think of someone with a quick temper who just flings out insults and flings out violence. Instead, think of a long-suffering judge who gives time to repent, but will carry out his word, will carry out his justice. We must remember this when we speak to people. If we want to give people a true picture of God, we must not erase what makes him a righteous judge. If we say that God is a God of love who would never punish sin, if we say that God is a God of love who would never send people to hell if they do not repent, then what we are ultimately saying is that God is a judge who will never do his job. But that is not glorifying to God. That is not a righteous way to speak of him. If we are to be true prophets, if we are to give the right type of teaching to people, it may sometimes be uncomfortable. But we must not leave out the wrath of God. We must not leave out his law and his righteousness. What is the result of this? What happens if we do belittle the wrath of God and his justice? Well, the second thing that we see about these comfortable teachings is that they often promote more and more wickedness. Again, we see this in verse 14, where Jeremiah says, They have not exposed your iniquity. They have not brought to light the sins that you are committing. This very easy-to-listen-to teaching that comforted the people, it didn't care about their sin. It didn't care what they were doing in the sight of God. In fact, Jeremiah references this. If you were to look at uh, Jeremiah 7, in verses 8 through 15, he speaks to the people exposing their sin while their other prophets would not. There Jeremiah says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Jeremiah goes on to say, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, 
Therefore, I will do to this house that is called by my name, in which you trust, in the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did in Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight. And I will cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. What sort of teaching would make people think that they could live lives of such great sin and then go into the temple of God and say, we are delivered, we are saved, we have the graciousness of God who took us out of Egypt. What sort of teaching would allow for that? A very comfortable teaching. A comfortable teaching that would never bring up the sins of the people, never call them to repent, but simply ignore their iniquities. What sort of teaching would allow someone to enter into a church and to sing praises to God's holiness and to his righteousness, to sing of the great mercies of God in Christ, to say, we are saved, we are delivered, and then leave church and then go meet up with their boyfriend and girlfriend who they were sleeping with that night? What sorts of teaching would allow someone to come to church and sing the praises of God only to go home angry at their husband and wife not speaking to them, and not caring about the unrest in their marriage. To treat their children badly. To treat their parents back home badly. To harbor anger to coworkers. What sort of teaching would allow for us to live lives of hypocrisy comfortably, singing and saying we are saved, and go on doing abominations before the Lord? Again, it is a very easy Sort of teaching, a very comforting prophecy that doesn't expose sin, but keeps the people happy and comfortable in coming back. Augustine says about this, that flattery confirms sinners and their evil desires by giving them praise. This comfortable Christianity, this comfortable teaching, it confirms people in their evil desires. It says, you're fine. Stay right where you were. Stay in your sin. Don't worry about it. God loves you, so it's okay. But that's a terrible thing that we do not want to be guilty of. We want to show people the love of God, but we do not want to do it in a way that confirms people in their sins. In a way that makes people say, oh, I sin every day, but isn't it amazing that God still loves me? I sin every day and it doesn't bother me, but isn't it amazing that God is still gracious and he forgives me no matter what I do and no matter what I think. I, under, I understand the desire to make people feel comfortable. I do not like controversy. I don't like uncomfortable situations. But when we hear this type of teaching, not one that simply talks about the graciousness, graciousness of God, with a type of teaching that talks about God's grace in a way that diminishes the need for repentance, that doesn't call, call out iniquity, that doesn't expose sin. It's this sort of teaching that only encourages more and more sin. If we are sad when we look at the church and we're sad that it's full of sin, one thing that we might have to think about is does the way that we talk about God's grace encourage people to live hypocritical lives?
Does it encourage people to remain comfortable in their sin and in more and more wickedness? You see, it's this chain that this very comfortable teaching has. It diminishes the wrath of God. It encourages people into more and more sin. And we see, thirdly, that ultimately, it doesn't bring the salvation that our teaching desires to have, but it ultimately brings destruction. Though the easy prophets went against the difficult prophecies of Jeremiah, verse 17 says, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. In the text that we have read, we see horrific destruction. We see that the prophet's eyes are spent with tears. Even though he knows that this judgment was coming, it brings him no happiness. He doesn't glory in saying, I told you so, but he weeps for this city. He weeps for the people who are called by God's name, who bore this judgment, who had to be afflicted in this way. He looks around, he says, there's nothing left. The places that should be safest, the streets of the city that used to have life and people walking around, the arms of mothers that used to have children who were fed and had great futures ahead of them, are now filled with death and dying children. The enemies of God's people, they mock them because what used to be so beautiful and so highly praised has now been brought so low. And remember that we are talking about the covenant community people, or the covenant community here. We're talking about God's people. When we speak to fellow Christians, fellow people within the household of God, we must remember that when we seek to comfort each other, we do not want to comfort each other as the false prophets did. If you remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we see Jesus walking throughout the churches, and he's giving words of encouragement, but he's also giving judgment. And if you were to look in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 22, we see the very famous passage of Jesus speaking to the church at Laodicea. And you'll see very similar way of speaking to this church that Jeremiah speaks to the people of Israel. Very similar way of speaking. There Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. I will cast you out of my presence. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness, and may, be, and may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered, or as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now the words that Jesus says here are meant to make this church feel uncomfortable. They already felt very comfortable. They thought everything was fine. The people of Israel thought everything was fine. They were very comfortable. Nobody was telling them that they were poor and pitiable, that they needed to repent. They thought they were fine. And Jeremiah says, if you continue this way, if you refuse to repent, then the Lord will cast you out of the land. Jesus says to this church, if you think you're comfortable, I urge you to come to me for true riches, for true sight and health. But if you refuse to repent, I will spew you out of my mouth. We must not read the prophecies of Jeremiah and think that this doesn't apply in some way to the church as well. When God looks at his church, he expects a certain way of living. He expects that our faith be genuine, that our repentance be genuine, and that we live in accordance to his word. And if we do not, if we continue in sin without repentance, without a true love for him, keeping his commandments, like he says to Laodicea, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now the uncomfortable teaching would not lead to what Jesus eventually says to that church. But instead, Jesus says in verse number 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. And he says, Be zealous and repent. You know, we often hear this verse and we think it applies to evangelism, you know, speaking to people outside the church, that God is knocking on the door, won't you let him in? But actually, this verse is speaking to a church that is comfortable in its sin. And Jesus is saying, I want to be with you. I am outside of the door knocking. Open the door, meaning repent and have this joyous communion with me, your Lord. And it's only the uncomfortable teaching that will bring us to this. You see, it is the uncomfortable teaching that ultimately brings restoration with Christ. So in this passage, let us look secondly at the uncomfortable teaching that does truly bring restoration. If you were to look back at our text in verse 19, Jeremiah says to the people what they must do. Up until this point, he has spoken of their destruction. He has spoken of the terribleness that is all around him. But then he comes and he says to the people, Arise, cry out to the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Open the door and repent. Here we see the way that this uncomfortable teaching, it brings restoration. Because while the very comfortable teaching doesn't speak about the wrath of God or his justice, the uncomfortable teaching does speak about his justice. But it does so in a way that gives meaning to the love of God and the mercy of God. 
You see, I'm not saying that the right type of teaching just speaks justice and wrath. What I'm saying is that the right type of teaching speaks all of God's word. And it speaks of God's righteousness and his wrath. And it speaks of his mercy by sending his son who bears the wrath of God in our place. In fact, if you were to look at Isaiah, one of the true prophets of God, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, very famous passage. It says, he, speaking towards Christ, who will eventually come, it says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This verse is a verse of mercy and grace and love. But notice the words of wrath that are there. Wounded, crushed, chastisement, stripes, all for our iniquity. It is our wickedness that deserves this judgment of God. It does us no good to ignore it. It does us no good to act as if God will just accept everybody as they are. Just come in. Don't even worry about your life. Continue as you are. Just know that God loves you. It does us no good to speak that way because that is not the gospel. Rather, the gospel is that we are sinful people. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve his judgment. But in his great love, this God took on flesh, and he bought us with his own blood. The Father sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be our substitute, our sacrifice. Christ bore the justice of God so that all, so that all of these things would not fall on us. And while the very comfortable teaching ignores this, and while it encourages more sin, we see secondly that this somewhat uncomfortable teaching, it encourages and promotes a life of repentance. Jeremiah calls for the people to cry out to God. You see, when we take into account both the justice of God and his mercy, that leads us to repentance. We see this throughout scripture. We see this in Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 18 and 19, speaking of the call to repent and trust in Christ. There it says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. So what do we see in the suffering of Christ? Well, we see the perfect picture of God's wrath and his justice with his grace and his mercy. So what does that lead us to? It continues, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It is by a life of continual repentance that a Christian enjoys true peace in the presence of God. It is by repenting that a Christian opens that door, that the church opens the door so that Christ dwells with them in a comforting way, so that they have this perfect communion with their Lord. But this happens when we repent. The Shorter Catechism asks, what is repentance unto life? 
And it answers, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of true sense of, uh, uh, sorry, out of true sense of his sin, recognizing the wrath of God, in apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth grief or doth with grief and hatred of his sins turn from it to God, with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. True repentance is recognizing our sin, knowing the wrath of God, and also recognizing the mercy of God and the price that Christ paid in a way that moves us to true repentance. Imagine if you have a friend and you say something about your friend when speaking to somebody else. You do your friend wrong. You gossip about them. You lie about them, maybe. And eventually, what you said gets back to your friend. And now they know what you've done. They know what you have said against them. Well, imagine you meet that friend later and you meet up for coffee. Can you sit there and continue your friendship business as usual after what's happened? Can you make jokes and laugh with your friend and just enjoy your time, even though in the atmosphere, in the mood of this conversation, your friend knows what you have said and you know that your friend knows? You can't. It's tense. It's uncomfortable. Most likely, you'll be avoiding them because you're afraid to go see them. You can't continue that relationship. You cannot grow in that relationship until what you have done has been dealt with, until you bring it all out honestly. Our relationship with the Lord is very much the same. We cannot expect to go to the Lord in prayer, go to his word and desire to spend time with him if we're dishonest, knowing that we have sinned against God, knowing that we do not desire to repent, knowing that we want to continue in our sin. We cannot grow in our relationship with the Lord knowing that we have sinned against him and have no desire to get it right. Do you desire to have a peaceful relationship with the Lord? Do you want what Christ describes there in Revelation? Him coming in to be with you, to sup with you, to spend time with you, to have that wonderful communion? That comes about through opening the door. That comes about through repentance. So I encourage you. Are you afraid to pray sometimes, knowing that there's this unconfessed sin? Are you putting off the reading of his word because you feel ashamed? Do you hear Christian music, but you turn it off because it convicts you? If you have this in your life, then I encourage you to pray honestly before the Lord. It does no good to pray at the same time, asking the Lord to just ignore what you know that he knows. It does you no good to just try to continue the relationship with that tense atmosphere. Just like any relationship, it will not grow and it will not continue. You must repent before the Lord. And he desires to have this relationship with you. And that is ultimately how the uncomfortable teaching, all of this is very uncomfortable, but that is how it ultimately leads to restoration. This is what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, be zealous and repent. 
open the door. Last week, we heard about how God brings punishment to the church and how this it affects different people in the church different ways. Um, we react to it in different ways. Uh, oftentimes, when God's judgment comes on the church, two things happen, or two types of people receive this. There are those hypocrites within the church. Uh, oftentimes, sometimes the judgment that falls on them, it brings them to repentance, and that's a beautiful thing. There are hypocrites within the church, but when uncomfortable teaching comes, it brings them to repentance, and that's good. But sometimes it drives them out. It purges and it cleans the church when judgment comes. Uh, in the nation of Israel, there were probably many hypocrites, many people who were not part of God's elect or, rem or uh, remnant, and they died in their sins. And they were purged from God's people. But at the same time, there was people like Jeremiah. There was a remnant. There were true elect people of God within this covenant community. And they experienced this judgment, but it didn't ultimately judge them in the way that it would someone who never repents. You see, for the elect, as they are drawn by the Holy Spirit to repent, what happens is this judgment, it becomes the chastisement of a loving father, and it brings about growth, and it brings about true repentance, and it furthers that relationship. If we continue in sin, if we sin as believers, the Lord will come to discipline us as a parent. Sometimes that discipline results in eyes that are spent with weeping, Sometimes it brings destruction around us. Don't presume that just because you are a baptized member of God's covenant people, that the Lord will take your sin lightly. Many marriages have fallen apart because people who bear the name of Christ did not deal with their sin. They did not repent. Many teachers and leaders in the church have been humiliated, brought down because they thought that they were impervious to any sort of judgment from their father. But we know that the Lord loves his people and he disciplines them and he reproves them. Learn from your father and live in the way that you were called. We were not saved, we were not adopted so that we might live in unrighteousness. In fact, if you were to look in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, it summarizes all of this very well. And it shows how the elect of God, those who maybe you're listening to this and you truly do repent of your sin, you cry out in the night watches, you desire to have that reconciliation with the Lord. That's good. That's the moving of the Holy Spirit who calls you to turn from your sin, to grieve and to come to the Lord. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says to you. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it. As we are reproved by God, as we are chastised by God, as our sin brings us to weeping and mourning, remember what its purpose is. Last week, Jonathan was talking about how you know, historians would look at the people of Israel and they would say that in all likelihood, if there weren't these exiles, the Israelites would have continued into their um, idolatry. They would have continued into their polytheism. But because of these exiles, when they returned, it corrected them and it shaped them to be rigorous monotheists until Christ came. The discipline of their father reproved them. Let it be the same for us. Let us too repent and cry out to God, not despising his discipline, but reacting as good children who after being disciplined by God, repent and come to him. So as we close, I want to, I want to ask, what sort of life do you want as a Christian? It is possible to be a very miserable Christian at times. Sometimes, as we heard last week, this results in a sort of a silent treatment. Uh, sometimes God remo uh, removes his countenance from us and we, we have our assurance shaken. This gives us great uneasiness. In fact, our uh, confession says about assurance that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken. Sometimes by falling into some special sin that wounds the conscience and grieves the Spirit of God, and by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance, and by allowing even those who fear Him to walk in darkness in no light. Do you feel that you are walking in darkness? Does it feel like God's face has turned away from you? Do you pray and it feels like there's nothing? Perhaps there's some unconfessed sin in your life. Perhaps God is trying to get your attention and to draw you to be honest with him. Not to try to hold on to your sin while at the same time hold on to him. But he's trying to draw you to repentance. When you pray honestly, repenting, sometimes repentance is very difficult. We want to keep that sin. Sometimes there are other factors keeping us from repentance. And we think that the repentance is too hard to do. It will cause too much discomfort. I encourage you, once you drop that sin, once you repent from that sin and go to the Lord, you will have greater peace than that sin could ever give you. You have greater assurance, the light of God's face shining upon you. You will grow in that relationship. And also sometimes, not only is it that sort of silent treatment, sometimes in your life, very difficult things will come up. Sometimes God will bring us to difficult places in our life 
to draw us to repentance. And so, arise, cry out into the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Speak honestly to the Lord, hiding nothing. Repent from whatever sin you hold so dear to yourself and go to him. You will not find any pleasure in your sin, but with true repentance towards Christ. With true thought to the God who loved you and sent his son to die for your sins. With true love for the Christ who shed his blood for you. There you will find perfect peace. This sort of teaching that might make us feel uncomfortable, but it will bring us to holiness, and it will bring us to repentance, and ultimately, it will bring us to perfect restoration with our Lord. So church, would you do that with me? Let us think not of repentance as something that we've done in the past, but throughout our lives, let us repent. Not because God is angry with us forever, but because he disciplines us like a loving father who wants a joyous, wonderful, covenant relationship with him. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we have so much to thank you from or thank you for. Lord, not only do you call us to repentance, but Lord, you even give us the possibility of repentance. Lord, even though your chastisement is sometimes difficult, the worst would be if it was never there at all. Father, sometimes the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, comfort, is uh, discomforting. But Lord, what would be so much more discomforting, what would be so much worse, is if you withdrew your Spirit from us, if we weren't convicted, if we chased off towards sin, not towards you, and found only punishment and death and hell. But Lord, what a grace it is that you convict us by your word. And Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you draw us to repentance. So Father, I pray that for all of us in here, Lord, that we will not listen to comfortable teaching that encourages us to stay in our sins. Father, I pray that you would convict us that you would show us the ugliness of our sin, we would turn from it, that we would come to the beauty that is you and a wonderful relationship with you. So Father, I pray that you would work in all of our lives today, that you would draw us in repentance to true communion with you. Father, I ask all of this in Christ's name I pray. Amen.